To start off uh, this morning, I want to uh, tell you a story about a friend of mine named Greg. Greg went to our church where, where we used to live, and uh, he, was, he was actually the custodian there. And so I got to know Greg um, over time, and, and he, he just had this really bubbly personality. He was one of those guys, just really friendly. And uh, beyond that, uh, Greg just felt like every good thing that he saw in his life He saw it as just like a special gift from God just for him. That's how he viewed life. And and it was like, it was just like this this, this, um, aura of just thankfulness that you would get from Greg. And it was really a wonderful thing because Greg also had a lot of problems in his life. He he struggled with alcoholism and he, he struggled to pay his bills. He did not make a lot of money. He had a bad back. Um, and that made it more difficult for him to get a job. And he lived in this tiny little room, you know, just this tiniest little room that you could ever imagine. His bathroom was like, was like the size of this podium. I mean, it was just the smallest bathroom you have ever seen. Like when I once went to the bathroom and uh, the, the sink was like jutting out over top of the toilet. And that's how little, that's how little floor space there was in this bathroom. Um, Greg, Greg struggled with the basics in life. The basics in life provided pr- plenty of challenge for him. Well, one day, Greg and I were talking, and he was telling me about some story from his life, and, and he, he was going through, and he said, yeah, but that was, that was before my accident. And I had known Greg um, for, you know, a pretty, pretty good time, and, and I had never heard about his accident. So I asked him, you know, hey, Greg, what's, what's this about an accident? I never heard about this. And, and he began to tell me about how one night... He was, he was walking through the snow. It, was, it must have been like a blizzard or something, but it was just, it was, it was, um, there's a lot of snow on the ground. He was walking across the crosswalk, and the light was red, and, uh, and a car that was going way too fast um, went through the red light and hit him, and hit him hard, and then the car drove off. Uh, Greg sustained massive brain injuries. He lost large, large portions of his memory. And, uh, and he was in a coma for several months. And as, as Greg was telling me this, I was like, man, now I can see why Greg is the way he is. They did catch the guy. He might have turned himself in. I don't know what happened. But while, while Greg was in a coma, he, he lost his job. And, uh, you know, I asked him, well, well, Greg, you know, you lost your job, but surely there was some sort of settlement, right? And he said, yeah, yeah, there was, but it was, it was only a few thousand dollars, what? A few thousand dollars? I was like, what happened there? He's like, yeah, there's there's some technicality with the insurance or something. I, I, I never really understood it. The driver had to pay some penalties, um, but he eventually got to walk free. And Greg began to tell me how it was during that time in his life that he first began uh, to, to drink. And he had never had a problem with alcohol in his life before then, but his life was different now, and it would never be the same. As I look back on Greg, I can see that, that, that part, of the, part of the problems in his life stemmed from his own choices, mistakes he had made. Well, Greg passed away one day when his, the alcoholism mixed with his medications uh, created some sort of conflict in his blood. And uh, poisoned him. I do think that part of um, the, the situations in Greg's life were the consequences of his own decisions. But I have to wonder how might his life have been different if he hadn't have been in that accident? Where 
is justice for Greg. Today, a man who was being reckless with a vehicle on a snowy night walks free and unaccountable for the life-shattering permanent injury that he, he caused to my friend. Today, an insurance company has some extra money in their pockets because they figured out how to work a system, find a loophole in a system, and keep Greg from damages that, according to our laws, he was entitled to. Where is justice? Our hearts are heavy when we see injustice in the lives of other people. But they burn with anger when it comes into our own lives. How do we deal with injustice when it comes our way? Personal injustices can happen at work. They can happen um, in our homes. And Jesus said that we should, we should love our enemies. But how do we do that? How do you, how do, you do that? especially when the injury is fresh in your mind. Today we're going to be looking at the trials of Jesus, where Jesus, the most innocent man who ever lived, a man who did not sin at all, experiences profound injustice after injustice. There are six trials. There's one before Annas, there are two before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, um, there's one before Herod, and there's two before Pilate. Six trials in less than a day. And we're going to take a look um, at how Jesus dealt with these trials. We're going to highlight some takeaways for our own lives, how we can respond to injustice. In order to do this, we first need to take a look at the Jewish judicial system. You see, the, the, the Jews um, were, and they always have been, a people who are very meticulous about their laws. You see, their relationship with God, their covenant with God, was based on how well they followed the teaching of Moses, uh, which, which we also refer to as the law of Moses. Now, the law of Moses has a ton of laws, but not all of them are really specific. Some of them are, but, but there are plenty that aren't. And so, you know, if you, for example, you guys may know that uh, Jews um, observe the Sabbath, um, a day of rest on the seventh day of the week, on a Saturday. And so the law of Moses essentially says about the Sabbath really just one thing. You're not supposed to do any work. But, you know, one day someone kind of sat down and said, you know, well, what constitutes work? Is washing dishes work? Is, you know, sweeping the floor work? How about cooking? Is that work? And so the rabbis joined together and they began to debate these things. They began to say, well, you know, what, what is work? And they came up with some extra laws to help guide people um, in terms of what constituted work. The Jewish people really care about their laws, and it makes sense that they do, um, based on their beliefs. And we, in fact, we would actually care about our laws too if our faith was based on laws. But thanks be to Jesus, it is not. Our faith is based on a relationship with God that comes through grace. Uh, they, so the Jews had all these extra laws, and they were carefully passed down from generation to generation. And they were eventually written down in what, what is now today called the Mishnah. And the cool thing about the Mishnah is, is that it gives us a glimpse into what Judaism was like in the day of Jesus. It gives us um, a reliable source of information about the laws that people and the laws and the traditions that people were following in order um, to observe the law of Moses. Now, everyone knows that uh, laws are no good unless you have someone to enforce them, right? It doesn't work without that. So the Jewish people had a high court that they called the Sanhedrin. 
And the Sanhedrin was responsible for convicting people when they didn't follow these laws. They also had, they also had smaller courts for, for lesser crimes, but the Sanhedrin was essentially the large, uh, the supreme court. And the Sanhedrin was led by the high priest, um, who at this time was Caiaphas. Now, in our law system, we have, we have laws um, about how the court system is supposed to work. And, uh, they, you know, we, we say that people have a right to a trial by jury. People have a right to representation. We have these laws to keep, make sure the process is fair. And so there, there were laws about how the Sanhedrin was work, supposed to work as well. And, and, in fact, you know, looking at these laws, they were, they were good laws. They were designed to protect people from being innocently convicted. But in Jesus' trials, many of these laws were broken. First, you are not allowed to have a trial in the middle of the night. In the Mishnah, in the book or or tractate Sanhedrin, chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, In capital cases, they hold the trial during the daytime, and the verdict also must be reached during the daytime. You could not have a trial in the middle of the night. However, Jesus was put on trial by both Annas and Caiaphas in the middle of the night. Second, you couldn't have a trial just anywhere. You couldn't have a trial in secret. All trials were supposed to happen at the temple in the Hall of Judgment. Sanhedrin, chapter 11, verse 2. They, referring to the Sanhedrin, should all proceed to the great, cha- great court of the chamber of hewn stone from whence instruction um, was issued to all Israel. For it says, you shall carry out the verdict in the place uh, um, that the Lord chose. You had to meet at the temple. Where are these guys? They're, at Chia- they're having a trial in Caiaphas's living room in the middle of the night. There were other corruptions. The high priest wasn't supposed to participate in the questioning. And it seems in the text, we'll be taking a look at these, it seems that in the text we'll see that the high priest did most of the questioning. The verdict couldn't be given on the same day. For Jesus, they held the trial, they had the, they had the verdict, and they had the sentencing in one meeting. You couldn't have a trial leading up to, to the festival. But in Jesus' case, what, what was the festival? They were having Passover. They were right on the eve of the Passover. You couldn't convict someone unless you had two to three witnesses. You had to have witnesses that agreed in their testimony. And they had a multiple of, multitude of witnesses that did not agree. And they never found witnesses that actually were able to give something substantial to convict Jesus. Someone was supposed to speak for and represent the side of the defendant. But no one was selected to represent Jesus. They just questioned him directly. And of course, it's never okay to beat someone and, and mistreat them before they've been found guilty. The corruption surrounding Jesus' trials was a gross disregard of justice. He was the most innocent man to ever live, but through a series of corrupted trials, he was sentenced and tortured to be brutally, brutally killed. So let's walk through these trials and see how Jesus dealt with this. The first trial is with Annas. Who, who is Annas? If you lived in Jesus' Jesus's day, you would not ask, who is Annas? Because you would already know. Annas was one of the most powerful, most wealthy men in the Jewish world. Annas had a monopoly on the temple sacrifice system. You see, the way it works is all good Jews were supposed to bring animals to sacrifice at the temple. And Annas had begun selling animals at the temple to, um, to people who were then going to sacrifice them. And the thing was, you couldn't bring any old animal to the temple to sacrifice. You couldn't bring, like, a lame animal um, 
you know, an animal with a bunch of spots all over it. You had to, you had to, you had to bring animals. Um, the priest had to approve of your animal. And guess who was in charge of the priests? The high priest, Annas. So if you can take a look at this, you can see how there's a monopoly here. Eventually, Annas, you know, was removed from his office, but his son-in-law still controlled the business. His, his son-in-law was then high priest, and Annas had this monopoly that just kept people in the poorhouse. He would, he would charge exorbitant rates for animals that people had to buy if they wanted to be a good Jew. He had a very lucrative monopoly on the, the temple sacrifice system. I like to think of Annas as a half-mob boss, half-religious scam artist. An- Annas, Annas reminds me of those TV preachers. I, I think you can, can picture me, but those, those TV preachers who are so blatantly set on getting rich. I was, I was once talking to this lady. I'm not sure how it came up, but she, um, she was having these headaches, and uh, she was having a tough time dealing with them. And so I was talking to her about it. You know, she, they, they were just really affecting her life, um, kind of a major issue, not, not small headaches, affecting the way she lived. And she had been to the doctor, and the doctors really um, were not able to help her at this point. And as we were talking about it, she told me how she'd been listening to this guy on TV, and he, this, this preacher, and he was selling some holy water with the DVD to tell you how to use it. And she believed that maybe, maybe this is what she needed. She, she, she was telling me, you know, they say it, it works. That's what they tell, that's what they say. And then she went on to explain to me how she just could not buy it. Because it was too expensive. And I thought, good grief, you know, how expensive can a holy water and DVD cost? And so I asked her, you know, how much is it? And, uh, and she says, it's, it's $330. And I just, I just don't have enough money for it. $330! I could not believe this. And, and, then, and then she asks, she tells me, she says this, and I'm not joking at all. She said, she really said this. She said, you know, I was, I was going to go into my doctor, and I was thinking, you know, you know what do you think? Do you, do you think my health insurance would cover this? <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, we got some major problems here. Uh, $330. $330. Can you imagine the profit margin on a, on a, a little thing of water and a DVD? Just, a, just an exorbitant amount of money. And then I started to feel angry. Here's a poor woman who has headaches she cannot get rid of. Here's a guy who's trying to pull every last dime out of her for his own wealth. Annas was like this TV preacher, but Annas was worse. And of all people, he was an enemy of Jesus. Do you remember how Jesus responded when he entered the temple courts and he saw all of Annas' animals there and, and these, these, these uh, money changers? Those were Annas' guys. Do you remember how he responded? He was livid. He threw their tables on the ground. And he drove them out of the temple courts. He was livid. Well, Annas had not forgotten about this. And soon, uh, soon after he's arrested, Jesus is brought to Annas' house. And put on trial before Annas. And Annas begins to question him. Now, Annas uh, has been the high priest for many years. He wasn't anymore. 
but he'd been the high priest, and so he was familiar with the rules of the Sanhedrin. He, he knew, he, was, he, he oversaw those court battles and the conviction of many criminals. He, he knew the rules. But in a matter of minutes, Annas had broken several rules. And there's one particular that I want to highlight. In their judicial system, which was based, which was based on the teaching of Moses, um, people are innocent until proven guilty. It's kind of like ours, but, but it, differently than ours, you can't convict someone just by questioning them. You have to have witnesses. You had to have it. People were convicted solely on the basis of witnesses. Deuteronomy 19, uh, verse 15 says this, One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime or offense they have committed. A matter must be, must be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So once Anna starts cross-examining Jesus, Jesus calls him out on the error. It should have been such an easy thing to get witnesses to convict Jesus, but there's not a single witness in the room. And Jesus points this out. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in, their, in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Why question me? You know you need two, two to three witnesses to convict me. They should be easily available. What are you doing questioning me? He has to prove him guilty, and he can't do that without witnesses. Annas isn't following the rules. Then the guard hits Jesus, and Jesus calls him out on that too. And he says, you know, I didn't say anything wrong. Why are you, why are you hitting me? Point out the wrong. What I want to point out here is that Jesus calls him out on the injustice. And this is my first point in responding to injustice. It's okay to call people out when they're being unjust to you. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. Paul had been detained in Jerusalem because he was telling people about Jesus and people were getting angry. And uh, a Roman commander had ordered Paul to be whipped. And they, they, get the, they were gathering around for his whipping. It was about to happen. And Paul says to the centurion, he says, you know what? Um, I'm, a, I'm a Roman citizen and you have not proven me guilty. And he calls him out on that. You can't do that to a Roman citizen. You can't, you can't punish them without proving them guilty first. They weren't following the rules, and Paul pointed it out. He pointed out the injustice, and he saved himself from a whipping. When someone is being unjust to you, it's okay to point it out. In fact, I would say it's important, it is right to point it out. You know, as I thought about this, I think one of the most important, uh, relevant places to apply this principle is in the home, and especially in marriage. I can think of several, mar- several cases of, of marriages that I knew um, or was familiar with where one person was deeply troubled and, and deeply injured about something the other person had done. And uh, they may have complained about it, you know, but they never really sat down and said, hey, you know what? I feel like you are being deeply hurtful to me. And so what happens to a marriage like this? One person is deeply hurt. The other person might be aware of some of the frustration, but they're not really aware of how deeply painful it is for the other person. And a year passes. And then another year, and the injustice is becoming more painful. Years go by, and then they wake up, and they realize that the injustice has become unbearable. If you feel that your spouse is being unjust to you, bring it up. If, if your spouse is telling you that you are being unjust to them, listen up. 
the longer you take to bring it up, the longer it's going to take and the more difficult it's going to be to find healing. Bring it up. If it's really important to you, bring it up. Don't just live in a puddle of mediocrity. God desires better things for your marriage. There's two disclaimers uh, to this principle of pointing out the injustice. Sometimes the, the things that family members do to us, they, uh, they feel like injustices, but in actuality, they're just really, mis- they're really not. They're miscommunications or they're um, expectations that we need to change. But you should still bring it up. Because if you never bring it up, you'll never know that it was a miscommunication. You'll never know that it, it, was, it was this expectation that was misaligned. You'll never know unless you bring it up. The second disclaimer I want to mention is that sometimes we do have to pick our battles. You know, the, Bible teaches, the Bible teaches us to forbear with one another, to be, to be quick to forgive. It's not going to work for us to bring up every single little injustice. Sometimes you have to pick your battles. Pointing out injustices, let's be honest, it's a little bit scary, right? Bringing up an injustice, at least where I come from, bringing up an injustice means an argument. You have to be willing to have arguments, though. If you're not willing to have rough arguments, then you are resigning yourself to a lousy marriage. And your marriage can't grow. The most painful arguments I have had with my wife have been the greatest areas of growth in our relationship. Bring it up and work through it. Work through it. Keep going. Work through it until you have real togetherness. So you have the sort of marriage that God intended you to have. The second trial is before Caiaphas, who is actually the high priest. He's he's the real high priest, and they're meeting at his house. And so Caiaphas is there, but it's not just him. The Sanhedrin is there too. And if you remember, the Sanhedrin is this group of religious leaders who are the, the supreme court, essentially, of the Jewish law. They judge the court case for the Jews. And and so what we have here is about is anywhere from like twenty three to seventy people. Um, who are in the middle of the night, crowded around in Caiaphas' living room to put Jesus on trial. So Jesus is there before the Sanhedrin, and they're having a tough time, though. They, they can't find something to charge him with. The witnesses aren't agreeing. They have nothing substantial. And so Caiaphas, is, is, he, he just cuts to the chase, and he says, Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, we need to pause here and recognize that our idea of Messiah is not the same thing as their idea of Messiah. You know, we we, we need to recognize that we we have some background here that they didn't have. When we say Messiah, we think of a Savior. We think of a spiritual figure. Um, And we're obviously influenced by the fact that we believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so we have that. But as a Jew living in Jesus' day, you weren't thinking of a spiritual Messiah. You were thinking of a political Messiah. You were thinking of a royal Messiah. You were thinking of a Messiah who was going to take military might and drive the Romans out of your country because they had taken over it. The prophecies in the Bible said that the Messiah would be a king like David. He would bring freedom for the Israelites. And through his, his initiatives, he would usher in uh, this everlasting kingdom of peace. The Israelites would finally um, be free from oppression. Oppression would be gone. Peace would be widespread under his rule. Now, there were a lot of prophecies about the Messiah. 
But there's this one in Daniel chapter 7 that we need to take a look at. You see, this prophecy seemed to be about the Messiah, but there was something wrong. Daniel, who lived 600 years before Christ, was sleeping one night, in, in his, and in his room he had this vision. He says, I looked, and there before me was, was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that's God, and he was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All nations and, and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And the Jews would, would look at this, they looked at this passage and they said, well, you know, that's kind of funny. Because it seems to be about the Messiah. But the Messiah is going to be a man. And no man can be in the immediate presence of God. This doesn't make sense. You know, we're, we're too sinful. We can't be in the presence of God. So how, how's, how's this Messiah figure being in the presence of God? And then, then they notice, you know what? He's being worshipped in this passage. No man can be worshipped. God would never okay that. They say he looks like a man, but he's kind of divine. He seems, he seems you know, heavenly. So over the years, they would speculate about who this, Daniel, this son of man was from the Daniel 7 vision. They didn't know what to make, make of it. Looks like a man, but he's kind of like God. Now, Jesus had referred to himself as the son of man throughout his ministry. But there are lots of references to the son of, to, to son of man um, figures in the Old Testament. You know, there's a bunch in Ezekiel. There's um, some in Genesis. You know, it's not, and not all of these are heavenly. Sometimes they're used, used to refer to someone's humanity, the fact that they are a son of, of Adam, you know, a son of man. And so, uh, you, know, you know, I don't know about you, but when I started reading the Bible, I can, I can still remember in Matthew, you get, you get to do these, these passages, and Jesus keeps referring to himself as the son of man. And, and I just, I was kind of like, I was kind of getting annoyed with this. It's like, come on, Jesus, why don't you just tell them you're the son of God or, or that you are God? Well, why all this son of man stuff, you know? What are you trying to tell us? Well, Caiaphas was also pretty fed up with Jesus' cryptic language. And so he cuts to the chase and he says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas knew his messianic prophecies all too well. Coming on the clouds of heaven, Son of Man, coming on the clouds of heaven. He just claimed to be the Son of Man from the Daniel 7 vision. He just claimed to be the Son of Man from the Daniel 7 vision. Blasphemy! Sorry about the kids. Um, blasphemy! He rips his clothes. He says, what's your verdict? We don't need to hear any more witnesses. We've heard it from his own mouth. What is your verdict? The Sanhedrin agrees. He deserves death. They spat in his face and they struck him. All sorts of injustices were being delivered to Jesus. The court proceedings, the conviction, the beatings, the mockings. In the midst of all this, Jesus didn't have a whole lot to say to his accusers, did he? But there was one thing that loomed in his mind, and he could not forget it. He was the Son of Man from the Daniel 7 vision. He was the long-awaited Messiah, the subject of many prophecies. He knew that he was the Son of God, and that he, he, he responded to what he knew to be true. There's a principle here for us. Know your identity. 
in the midst of injustice and persecution, find strength in knowing that you are a child of God. The Bible tells us that when we receive Jesus by faith, we become his children. Not his slaves, not his uh, royal subjects, not, not his servants, his children. When you aren't faced with injustice, especially injustice that you can't really do anything about, hold on and find strength in knowing that you are God's son. You are his daughter. He is thrilled about you. He delights in you. And he's going to take care of you. Do you know your identity? When Jesus went into his affliction, he didn't have a lot of clever things to say. He knew who he was and what he was there for. He was the Messiah, and he was about to pave a way for people to come back into relationship with God. Do you know your identity? Do you have an identity? The third trial. Somewhere along the lines, the Sanhedrin realized that they had broken the rules by having a trial at night, and so they reconvened in the morning, and uh, they did the whole thing over again for the appearance of order. They convicted him of blasphemy. Same thing. Now, it's hard to pin down what blasphemy is, um, but typically, it's, it's referring to speaking evil of or uh, speaking irreverently of God. And the sentence for blasphemy was death, according to the Jewish law. But the problem here was the Jewish, Jewish people could not put people to death. They were not allowed to do that according to Roman law. The Romans saved that for themselves. And so the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate, who's the Roman governor, and they say to him, this guy is perverting our nation, telling us not to pay taxes, He's calling himself a Messiah, the Messiah, who is a king, by the way. And so Pilate begins to question him. Now, there's a, there's a lot of material in these accounts of Jesus, and I'm, I'm kind of speaking, uh, skipping over some of it for the sake of time. But if you ever read for yourself, one of the things you're going to come away with is a sense of how calm Jesus is in the face of beatings and in the face of death. Through all the injustices, Jesus is undeniably calm. He doesn't fight back when they hit him. He doesn't get caught up, spilling over with rage. He, he doesn't get frantic with fear. He is just calm. He responds frankly, and a lot of times he's just silent. How do you do that? How do you keep a calm resolve in the midst of personal injustices? Well, the first thing we need to remember here is that Jesus was prepared for battle. Do you remember what he did to prepare for battle? What did he do the night before? He prayed. In fact, he, you know, he, he, he was still praying when they came to arrest him. He prayed in order to prepare for battle. Some of you may experience injustice in your workplace. Maybe it comes from your coworkers. Or maybe it comes from your boss. How are you preparing to go into the heat of your workplace? Are you thinking of all the ways you'd like to tell them off? Do you envision yourself saying things? Do you envision yourself... Uh, just, you envision your boss just, you know, curling over and, and, and just in tears because your verbal assaults have been just so piercing. Do you, do you envision that? If you experience injustice at work, I would encourage you to pray before you enter the building. You're sitting there in the car. You have a spare moment. Invite God into your day right then and there. Say, God, I need your help. I do not have enough strength for this. Ask him to walk through your day with you. There are other things we can do to maintain our resolve. 
one of the things that Jesus did was that he always kept the big picture in front of him. He was often telling his disciples as they walked um, from place to place, you know, the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. He will be rejected by the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. He often was thinking about what was far ahead. Hebrews 12 said said that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He saw the end result of his suffering. He saw the joy that was beyond the suffering. When you are experiencing injustice and persecution, I invite you to step back and look at the bigger picture. Our experiences with injustice are a way for God to mold our character. There's an end in sight, and there is joy at the end of our road. Here's another thing that Jesus did. He was able to see the the situation from someone else's point of view. Have you ever been so angry at someone... And then uh, once, once, you know, some, some information comes around, you start to see the situation from their point of view, you, feel, you start to regret your anger a little bit. We know that Jesus did this because what did he do on the cross? He was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was thinking about it from their point of view. He knew that Annas and Caiaphas were blinded by their money. He knew that the Sanhedrin was blinded by their pride. He knew that they were not going to be able to rightly consider his claims to be the Messiah. You know, when I was working as a carpenter, I had some bosses that we would call screamers. Some of you may, may be familiar with this, but these are the guys who would just yell at you and yell at you to try to make you work faster. And, uh, well, one of my bosses was not quite a screamer, but uh, he had ways to make you feel just miserable. One of, one of the ways that I can still remember vividly was that he would ask you um, when you were going to be finished. He would go like this. Hey, Ben, when's this, when's this floor going to be done? Oh, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe Tuesday. And, and so he would walk away, leave me, and then Tuesday would come around, lunchtime. Hey, Ben, when's this floor going to be done? Oh, let's see. Uh, you know, I, th- I think it might be maybe early tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning? Tomorrow? You said it would be done today. I told the painters you were going to be done today. You got three hours. Come on, get it done. And then you'd, then you'd feel pressured to rush in order to meet this, this arbitrary deadline. This boss would walk around and he would tell us how slow we were moving. And he would tell us about all the people who had come by and called him up looking for work and how if we didn't move faster, he was going to have to let us go. I'm sure, you, I'm, I'm sure some of you have had bosses like this. Well, I hated the way he treated me. And I hated the way he treated my coworkers. You know, it's such a sad thing to watch a guy running around a job site, rushing, 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 just because he's so worried that if he, if he even looks like he's not rushing, then he won't be able to provide for his family anymore. I didn't deal with the injustice the, the way I wish I would have. When it was lunchtime and he wasn't there, I would make fun of him, point out mistakes that he had made. If he made a mistake ordering the materials, I'd point it out. He's a bad foreman. What I was doing was I was trying to get revenge. I wanted to fight back against the injustice, but in the end, I was only hurting myself. But I found something that helped. I began to look at the situation from his point of view. 
I realized that his job was very much in danger, just like mine was, just like the rest of us. It didn't make it right that he treated us this way, but it helped me to see more clearly that he wasn't inherently malicious. He just had a tough time dealing with the anxiety of losing his job. Jesus refused to consider revenge. He was willing to have forgiveness for people, even when there was no apology. In 1 Peter 2, we get a glimpse of how how Jesus did this. Peter tells us this, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God, who judges justly. Jesus trusted the sovereignty of God's control. Jesus trusted that God never loses control. He trusted that God would carry out justice in the situation. If you are in the midst of injustice, you too will find peace when you come to a place where you can trust God's control of the situation. He promises to work things out for the good of those who love him. He promises that he will never forsake us. If you can trust him, then you can have peace. Things may not always work out exactly the way we want them to, but God never loses control and he never stops caring. As Pilate is questioning Jesus, he finds out that Jesus happens to be from Galilee, and Herod, who is from Galilee, who's the ruler there, happens to be in town. And so he sends Jesus over to Herod. And this is, this is Jesus' fifth trial in, in less than a day. Now, the passage tells us that Herod had been wanting to see Jesus. Herod was like, oh, man, can't wait to see Jesus, because he had wanted to see a miracle. And there's no spiritual desire there at all. He just wanted to see a miracle. And so when Herod begins to question Jesus, the meeting quickly becomes a joke because Herod's soldiers are just mocking him, and they're, they're, they're only out for a good show. They put a royal robe on him, and they're just mocking him. But according to Luke, Jesus has absolutely nothing to say to them. He says nothing doesn't answer a single question. I think there's a principle here from Herod's trial. Every once in a while, you'll run into a coworker or a friend who will just belittle your faith. They're, they're only out to make fun of your faith. They'll criticize it. But if you go to respond with a, you know, a serious reply, there's just more jokes and jabs. For people like these, it is better to just keep silent. Trying to talk with someone who is just out to make fun of your faith is a worthless endeavor. Instead, wait until they're ready to talk seriously. Finally, Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, and Jesus begins his last trial. Pilate's only concern is whether Jesus will be a threat to the Roman government. His only concern is, is Jesus a militant revolutionary who's going to try to attack and and overthrow um, our rule here? Eventually, um, in the conversations, Pilate realizes, you know, Jesus is just... He's talking about a spiritual kingdom. He's not talking about a real kingdom. And so Pilate tries to set him free. But the, but the crowds, they call for his crucifixion. Pilate sees that there's no reason, real reason to put Jesus to death. But the crowd is getting worse, and it's his job to keep the peace. And Pilate delivers the final injustice. He trades Jesus' life for a convenient solution. Jesus is, Jesus is guilty of treason against Caesar because he claimed to be some sort of king. Many people over the ages have tried to place blame for Jesus' death, tried to place it on Pilate, on the crowds, on the Jewish leaders. 
And, you know, one thing that's interesting is that it's, it's really tough to do this because there's so much injustice going on, it's hard to put the blame anywhere. Of all people, the deck seems stacked against Jesus. Sometimes it's hard to pin the blame for injustice. And so sometimes, sometimes, there's this temptation to put it on God. It's not a totally unreasonable reaction, but it's never the right way to respond. We should notice that not once does Jesus challenge God's notions of injustice, of justice. The most innocent man in the world is being put to a cruel, unjust death. All sorts of unusual circumstances have converged to create this situation, and he does not challenge God's choices in the matter. Like they were with my friend Greg, sometimes life circumstances seem stacked against you. And you may feel that way right now. Some sort of injustice that is in your life. And maybe there's just too many people to blame, or maybe there's no one to blame. Please don't take the misstep of blaming God for the injustice of your situation. There's brokenness in this world because of sin, and God only does good things. No evil thing can come from the hand of God. Pilate and the Jewish leaders had a clear verdict on the person of Jesus. They convicted him on the fact that he claimed to be the Messiah. But there is an unfinished verdict in this situation. There's the unfinished verdict that must happen in the heart of every person. Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the Son of Man from the Daniel 7 vision? Is he the suffering servant from Isaiah 53? Does he fulfill the prophecies made about him? Does it make sense that the Messiah would bring his everlasting kingdom of peace, not through military force or, or, or subjugation, but through a relationship with God that enables us to have peace in the midst of injustice because we know we, we are his own? Does it make sense that through a relationship with God, we can have true, unflinching peace? Please stand.